1983 was without question one of the most tumultuous and ultimately revolutionary years in the history of Australian Rugby League. Writing in the December edition of the Rugby League Week, Ian Heads rung in the changes with a fitting summation. No longer will the game be creakily run by that lumpish, jumbo-sized general committee, the Monday night mob who have got together for beer and prawns for the last 50 years or so. Streamline is the new name of the Rugby League administration game. So began the Ken Arthurson era. So sweeping and effective were the changes over the next decade, that it was regularly argued, often by Arthurson and his Lieutenant John Quayle themselves, that it was this radical leadership which had made the game such an attractive proposition to Murdoch's raid. These arguments were not without merit. But as with the regime of his predecessor Kevin Humphreys, it was the missed opportunities that would define and ultimately consign the Arthurson era. This is the final part of Making the Big Game Bigger, the second chapter of the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League plot. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How are you, Andy? Very well, mate. Uh, so when we met last, we discussed the, the Kevin Humphreys era at length, and we left the game in a pretty pre- precarious state in 1983. Very precarious. So we're going to be spending the next hour looking at how Ken Arthurson, John Quayle, and the new board turned that ship around, and also the the state they left it in in 1994 when you had the first rumblings of Super League. So Ken Arthurson wasted no time once he took over in making some radical changes to the game. And in fact, many of these changes were in the works even before he took over. Before his untimely downfall, Kevin Humphreys actually sounded out all the clubs in the game to come up with their ideas of the best way forward for rugby league. These were leaked to the Rugby League Week in in, in mid-1983. And I I think it's fair to say that it would have been someone at or near the top, who did the leaking. I, I don't think they were displeased that the word got out about this. I was just thinking it was one of those like Bozo-style New South Wales team leaks. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so I, I think this was like a directive to a, a bit of a PR leak. You yeah, know? Yeah. So in mid-1983, Ian Heads reported the Phillips Street files, which, as I said, were what club officials sent into the league about their ideas. Can I just say I miss Phillip Street as, yeah, a, as a term? I, I miss it so much. I'm, it was like Tuesday night at Phillip Street at the Judiciary yeah, instead, yeah. instead of Moore Park. I know. Is there a more obnoxious suburb than Moore Park? Yeah, and I, I would actually put up with it if it was actually referred to as Moore Park. If like, oh, they're meeting at Moore Park to discuss it, but it's always Rugby League Central. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I guess in terms of branding, it makes more sense. And it also makes more sense that they're there. But there was something about Phillips Street that it's right. It's right in the uh, in the legal fraternity. It's, yeah. it's around the barristers. It's around chambers. Yeah. You know, it's cool. I, I know. I don't know if I've actually even spoken to you about this off air. But did you know I did work experience at Big League when I was in Year Ten? <laughs> I do. Uh, and one of on on one day we I had to go into Phillips Street. I can't even remember what now, but it was like so exciting yeah, to me. Yeah. Like I was like, I'm going to Phillips Street. <laughs> Here's the, t- this is the time when Bill Buckley punches. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so at Phillips Street, the clubs delivered their ideas for the future of the game. Uh, such ideas as Newcastle and Central Coast teams being brought in, or basically at the same time, or not long after Illawarra and Canberra came in, an amalgamation of battling Sid- Sydney clubs, uh, more games under lights, third grade being abolished, the number of teams be reduced to 12. So a lot of the things that were being discussed at the time and over the next decade were seriously considered under Kevin Humphreys. 
a man ahead of his time, really. But it's uh, well, actually in his exact time, but it wasn't acted upon. But like, night football overlooked as one of the major factors in in television. And, yeah, and the whole the whole deal mm. it doesn't get mentioned nearly enough. No, really. absolutely, and and that's the funny thing we talked about the you know the viability of cup competitions and that sort of thing, but. I mean, if you look at the history of the game, that's often where you're seeing some of the great innovations mm. in rugby league. Um, night football goes back to, I think, the 20s and 30s. So it it, it had been something that had been done for a Can long time. Can you imagine time. how dark that would have yeah, been? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure... A couple of oil lamps. <laughs> uh, car headlights, probably, you know, lighting various corners. Although, we didn't we have that in a in an actual first grade game in Darwin last year? So. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't, you know, consign that to the past so quickly. So that that was just an opening point that... Changes were underway, and we ultimately said that that Kevin Humphrey's legacy is one of, beside the scandal, one of inaction, and and under his regime, the rugby league went backwards. But who who's to say what would have happened if he managed to get all the changes he want in? It's amazing that after the first segment of this making the game bigger section, I I just always remember him for the scandal, mm. and I always remember Quayle and Arco for being the you know, the go-getters and making the game better. It's all rose-colored glasses, but it's not really the case. No, as with everything in rugby league, it, it's there's always a continuum. And But so so once Arthurson did take over, he, he got the game together in the, the only way rugby league knows how to solve any problem, and that's with an honesty <laughs> session. And this was actually a game-wide honesty session held over two days at uh, the Regent Hotel. Too much honesty there. Uh, I'll, I'll read read this. This was Ken Arthurson's quote on, on the, the meeting. The basic building block for the game's great revival was a two-day forum held at Sydney's Regent Hotel. It remains in my memory as one of the most interesting events associated with rugby league I've ever attended, full of plain speaking, speaker after speaker from the game's broad community, players, coaches, the media, referees, marketers, got up and explained their thoughts on the game, its faults, and the direction in which it should be heading. Sometimes the debate sizzled. If you look up Rugby League on Encyclopedia Britannica under language that says plain speaking. <laughs> why is that? Why is that a shock? To yeah, it's the, it's the only <laughs> only type of speaking that rugby league people can, let alone respect, can actually understand. <laughs> uh, and funnily enough, at that forum, even though it was supposed to be discussing you know the future of the game, there was a lot of bloodletting about elements of the past with uh, the Greg Hartley affair coming up. By multiple speakers, so <laughs> talk about looking to the past. Like, <laughs> is there a sport that looks more to the past? It always reminds me of that final winter movie with Matthew Johns playing the old coach, and he's like at the judiciary, and he goes, "You used to be a winger." You yeah. <laughs> so something that uh, you know we, we've already discussed some of the the big ideas being talked about. We're going to spend the next hour looking at the actual change that came through, but. It, it's something that struck me like as so funny uh, about Ken Arthurson. Like, obviously, a man who, you know, wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty and, and get get things moving and make changes. When he was stepping away from the limelight and leaving his active role in the game, he had this to say about his successes. I have the sense now that some people at Phillips Street were waiting for me to go so they could push through a pet project or two. I was disappointed to learn, for example. That New South Wales country and Queensland have altered the rules of Peter Corcoran's mini and mod games for youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you completely change the game. You you know bring in new clubs, get rid of old clubs, and, and you're worried about them changing the rules of mod football. 
essentially sweet. It, it is, and I think it was important to put that in now just to set up the the way it's, it says a lot about his character and also the way he ruled over rugby league. But that's why I love these guys. We we, we always have a, a fun laughing at the archaic nature of them, but the, their love for the game is just yeah deep seated, and you can see it with that. And that is something that is gonna come up again and again once we get to Super League proper is this old school rugby league man love of the game brushing up against a kind of corporate non-rugby league but with a business track record there's always this tension and both sides have merit yeah absolutely I was just trying to think about it's very political obviously rugby league but unlike politics where they're sort of just base animals it's all about you know killing kings and getting power but they've got to have a facade of being uh stand-up guys yeah so there's this fine line you've got to walk between factions backstabbings but also presenting an image of a of a, of a guy in a handshake deal type thing it's an incredible uh set of skills yeah these guys have got yeah absolutely and we're, we're gonna come up against those skills many times over the next year so we talk about rugby league men and if it was just left to rugby league men to ring in all these changes that that were necessary, we probably wouldn't have got those changes. So to his credit and to to the new board's credit, the first thing they did was to bring in a management, a, a team of management consultants to you know pour over the books, look at the way things were run, uh, and and come up with with a few ideas. So might not shock you to know that <laughs> they weren't overly enthused about the way rugby league was run. In fact, it was actually reported in the rugby league week that. They couldn't ever recall looking into a poorer run organization. <laughs> uh, and the first thing that that you know came into their focus was the the game's governing body, a forty eight man general committee. That's incredible. That uh, is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and it's it's so funny because when you hear of people talking about um, you know Humphreys and his predecessors, it, it's always they they talk about these autocratic figures, and yet. Like they're autocrats that have to like get forty eight people on side. I know to get it's amazing, done. absolutely amazing. Uh, I wonder how it worked. Whether they had just sort of like their, their block of people that they could, they could always rely on their vote for. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and you you can see that with the way you know they talked about the cartel in the seventies. Uh, there was always like a, a core group before that and after that. Forty eight. Yeah. Uh, so Ken Arthurson said. I remember those nights of the 48-man committee. A suggestion would come up for change and they'd all be sitting there thinking, Jesus, how is this going to affect my club? <laughs> Which they should be doing. Yeah. Like, if, if you're given a place on that committee and you're representing your club, like, yeah. you have an absolute responsibility to act in the interests of your club. Absolutely. But if you're running the game, you have a responsibility <laughs> to, to ignore that ignore that and try to progress the game well, yet again we've gone from dallian messenger to, to to the 80s here the strength of the game is just so obvious because it's been sandbagged by itself for 120 years and it still survives yeah like think about that 48 guys and it still survives and is it so funny that at every level of the game rugby league people are so willing to shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> You know, like the the players campaign for change and, you know, greater representation and, you know, they want their stake in the game and spend the entire off season like <laughs> disgracing the nation, let alone the sport. <laughs> 
so in the end, the, the management consultants suggested and it was taken up that a nine-man central committee be formed to basically run the, run the game. So in addition to Ken Arthurson, it included Tom Bellow, John Quayle, Alex Mackey, John O'Toole, club representatives Dennis Fitzgerald and Monty Porter, uh, and also businessmen Alan David and Graham Lovett. That was met with resistance. There were people in the club saying, we need a direct say, but thankfully that was ignored and and they got the nine-man semi-independent board that was required. It's worth noting that five years ago, we were hailing an eight-man independent commission Eight yeah, per- we're hailing an eight-person independent commission as the savior of yeah. the game again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so at this point, Ken Arthurson was still running manly at at the same time as running the league. In August, he made the decision to leave official duties there to to go full time with the ARL and only run manly by proxy. <laughs> <laughs> How magnanimous! <laughs> uh, in his book, he talks a lot about his reluctance to to make that move and and the way that you know he really wrestled with the idea of leaving manly. How could you possibly run a club and the game? Yeah, but that's kind of the way that it had always been done. Yeah. you know, so it, it's a hard mentality to to break. And also, when you're such a staunch club guy as Ken Arthurson was and remained. But we discussed this. The perception game-wide was that Manly was getting favoritism yeah. and he's going to run both <laughs> club, club and game. So he he took up office in what was called the ARL Secretariat uh, in, in plush new headquarters in the city paid for by Rothmans. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's no wonder he was so willing to go in above and beyond in, in terms of like maintaining that relationship. The only way the the rugby league and cigarette tobacco relationship could be any more insidious is if they're both partners in a, like a coffin company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. So Tom Bellow became Kevin Humphrey's successor as president of the New South Wales Rugby League. Uh, and he, in, in addition to being, you know, someone who'd been on the scenes in rugby league, also had a strong, like, business background he was president of the stevedoring industry worked with the public service so it was a would he have had any experience in arguments in that, in that <laughs> role of the president of the stevedoring so he came from that mentality and then but because he wasn't rugby league enough met with a lot of resistance from rugby league men like Ron McAuliffe. I mean, like, Stephen Orring is as close to rugby league as he gets, and they're still saying he's a, he's a toff. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something that is is one of the key themes of this episode of the show is rugby league men. And we've, we've already talked about it, but it's the force that has propelled and held back rugby league for 100 years. Uh, so he stayed until 1986 um, before he retired. John Quayle, who Ken Arthurson labelled as the big one, he'd had a, after finishing his playing career, rose through the ranks uh, at East Leagues Club and, you know, made a reputation for himself as someone who could really handle himself in the, the business sense. Well, we spoke about it earlier, about these these guys have got to walk a fine line between being, you know, respected stand-up guys and, and, and political manoeuvres. He's the, he's the poster boy for that. Yeah. And we, we speak about this off air. Underrated in the in the dynamic duo of Arthurson and Quayle. Yeah, um, definitely not underrated by Ken Arthurson. Yeah, um, the, the public. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the all the ex players that we we mock for you know running clubs into the ground. He's the he's the uh, antithesis of that. Yeah, I, I mean not without some some faults that will will be discussed over the next few weeks, but certainly someone at, like absolutely pivotal 
to rugby league turning itself around in the 80s. Absolutely. So with the team in place, it they decided to get the word out that they they were making the changes. These were the priorities. So Graham Lovett gave an interview in 1984 where he outlined four major priorities for rugby league in Australia. So the first was getting the Sydney competition right. Second was preserving the interstate scene. Uh, third was national development. And fourth was restoring the health of the game internationally. Uh, we're going to be spending most of this episode talking about the first of those, but I thought we should briefly just touch on those other three. So preserving the interstate scene, you couldn't argue that they did that and double that. Home run. National development made some steps, but I, I think ultimately more focus on that might have made things different when Super League came in. Yep. Restoring the health of the game internationally, well, that's a, a fail, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's all on them. It's just a chasm between the professionalism of Australia and you know, other countries, but the contempt that they held it in, inexcusable. Yeah, exactly. As I said, the, the first one, getting the Sydney competition right, that was the key focus, and that's what the rest of this episode will be dedicated to. So a number of steps were involved in that. The first was one that had started under Humphreys and continued, which was cleaning up the game. This was a, a, a personal and necessary mission for Kevin Humphreys, not only because he could see the bottom line, falling falling revenue, crowds you know, dropping down the bottom, but when it became really personal was when the, the Catholic Weekly took out a <laughs> full-page article denouncing rugby league for the violence that had plagued the game. And you know, we spoke last week about the historic links between rugby league and Catholicism. In, in Big League in 1982, Kevin Humphreys wrote a response where he said, This premise is rejected outright by the New South Wales Rugby Football League. The article promotes the false premise that violence is common in rugby league and is increasing and that the league condones it. The fact is that violent acts are few and are decreasing because the league takes strong action to control players' conduct. In equating violence with commercialism, the editor also insults the league's sponsors, companies respected as reputable corporate citizens. As a Catholic and a regular reader of the Catholic Weekly for many years, this article is a deep personal affront. Wow. So it's funny. It just goes to show you that like, they were well on the path to fixing up the, the problems that with violence in rugby league. Like When you think about rugby league in the 70s, like violence is... The, the first thing. The very you know, first. Yeah. You know? So they were well on the road to fixing it, but it just goes to show you that lag between reality and public perception. So it, it takes a long time for that ship to turn around. Well, it's the same now with the off-field behavior. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All, although with the off-season, we had that lag, you know. My... <laughs> so the, the biggest step they took was to hire Jim Comans as the judiciary chairman in 1980. So... He had a, a solid rugby league background. He actually played for university back in the day, was a World War II fighter pilot. Actual tough guy. Actual tough guy, very intimidating man. Came in, every, everyone knows the story of like rubbing Les Boyd and others out of the game, uh, which Les Boyd's a, a, a funny funny topic, the way he, he's, he's discussed. You never meet a nice <laughs> bloke. <laughs> and in a sense, he's collateral damage, but at the same time, like, he was given multiple chances to heed the warning, yep. you know? Like, the lengthy suspensions were already coming down before he was ultimately all but permanently kicked out of the game. And let's not forget that the offences were despicable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And by 1985, the the number of suspensions had, like, 
more than halved. I'm not good with maths, but in 1979, before Coman's took over, there were 76 suspensions handed down by the league. In 1985, that was down to 22. Yeah. It's it's one of the most important growth periods for the game. Yeah. Rubbing out the violence. And in uh, Ian Heads and David Middleton's 2008 book, the centenary of rugby league. This quote stood out to me. Incidents of deliberate foul play have virtually been eradicated, a legacy for which Jim Comans deserves so much of the credit. When you think about even our childhood was watching rugby league, like there was a lot of viol- violences in fights. There was a lot of head high tackles and the rest of it, but deliberate acts of foul play. Yeah. Like it, you could count them on one hand. And the best, the best thing about it, rugby league people don't mind or didn't mind if you stood there man on man and had a fist fight. What they didn't want to see, mothers of children, was guys running in and blindsiding guys with elbows to the temple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so huge step forward. So that was a big one. Uh, another one was the rule changes that were brought in uh, in the Arthurson era, some way overdue rule changes and some some that were brought in just because of the way the game was trending like ultra defensive you know, dogs, you know of dog, dogs of war era you know six five four two all all those score lines <laughs> um so the four point try a handover when a player was caught on the last tackle as opposed to forming a scrum now the four point try it gets glossed over like it's nothing Can you imagine if like nfl said we're gonna have Seven-point touchdown. Yeah, yeah. It'd be the biggest thing ever. Yeah. We'll just go, yeah, okay, well, they're not scoring enough. Four-point yeah, try, yeah, yeah. move on. <laughs> it's amazing how fluid the game is. Mm. But it's, it's so funny, like, so many of the great rule changes have involved scrums. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, over the, the, the last 40 years, it's to make less of them. So I don't understand this, like, the, this rose-colored, like, we've got to bring back the glory of the scrum <laughs> when it seems that every problem over the last 40 years of rugby league... <laughs> Has been caused by scrums. <laughs> I think scrums have been hanging out at Northies. <laughs> then some some rules that were brought in a, a bit too late. So for 1986, they brought the rule in that if you caught the caught the ball on the fall in goal, it was a 22 tap as opposed to a dropout. Awesome rule. They actually brought it in as an experimental rule in late '84 in some inconsequential games. If they'd have brought it in '85, the drag my dragons would have won that grand final that year. So I'm I'm dirty about that. Let it go, mate. Let it go. That game, like I watched it for the first time about a year ago, and oh, that rule, like that, that <laughs> robbed us. Like we were going to win that game. So the biggest one of all, and the one that caused the most heartbreak, then going through the Super League and in everything we discuss now, is a- addressing failing Sydney clubs. So. Crowds were terrible in 1983. So were club finances with nine of the 14 teams in the comp technically insolvent. That's actually an improvement, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, including Illawarra who'd entered the comp the year before. <laughs> That's a worry, isn't it? I mean, at least they, you know, it didn't take long to catch up with rugby league culture and, you know, fit right in. But, you know, even... Premiers Parramatta, who were two premierships through their three-year run, had to ask the the league for money in 1983. Let me just go back to Illawarra there. Like, I'm not one to talk. I've got a budgeting problem like Liberace, but like, (laughs) it's modern reference for everybody. But how did they possibly overextend after one year? Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about the way they entered. One of the reasons was a failing local comp. And we spoke about how that's maybe not the best sign <laughs> f- for entering a club into the top league. But one would think the corporate support would have been there for the new team. and Yeah. One year in. 
Mm. It's insane. It is, and the Steelers were in big trouble from the start. But in 1983, they weren't the primary focus. There were three clubs in particular, Cronulla, Newtown, and Wests. So Cronulla, uh, I'll, I'll just just read this. This kind of this is from the Rugby League Week in 1983, which, which sums up their crisis. After the league's club withdrew its grant, which was worth $349,000 last year, the Sharks players agreed to half pay on the condition that the club's committee resigned. The club has budgeted for $140,000 in gate receipts for their 13 home games. With bad weather a hindrance, they will reach only little more than half this target. The Sharks' biggest crowd at Endeavour Field has been 7,174 Jeez. against Parramatta. And yeah, so at that stage, halfway through the year, they'd only attracted more than 5,000 people twice. That's really sad. But it, it goes to something that is like seems like a perpetual fight in rugby league, and that's the tension between football clubs and leagues clubs. And Which I, is amazing. I don't. Can you explain the business model to me that you have a leagues club that is built to fund the football club, and then the the bosses of the leagues club start worrying that they're having to give too much money to the football well, club? Well, I can explain it because what happens is you have a bunch of sociopaths running these clubs and they want to have their expense account and their Ford LTD and their secretary and their bloody junkets and whatever. So they're like, well, we need some of this uh, blood money to finance our snake-like existence. And that's basically it. <laughs> I, I don't know how it wouldn't have been written into the charter or the constitution or however they operate that – you are here to fund this football club. Absolutely, you know it's right there. Well, what, what they do is they give to they give a percentage to other charities, right? Mm. You know, people in need. So I do a joke on stage about this actually about how Americans look at us the way uh, with pokies, the way we, we look at them with guns. It's like so they go, well, you know, if people um, I need a gun because there's so many guns around. Yeah. I've got to protect myself. It's like that's actually actually works that argument, yeah. sadly. <laughs> and they're like, well, we need more pokies to pay for the uh, cheap housing when people lose their houses gambling. <laughs> so, so, so they're giving away like charity to the people they're stealing yeah. from, basically. <laughs> but that uh, that half pay thing, it came up again with Wes, and you know the Sharks actually agreed to it for a start, like. It's ridiculous that that could be considered a, an acceptable solution. <laughs> um, but secondly, like with Cronulla in particular, I, I really think of the the potential other career that ET could have had. So he came into the league in '83, right as all this was happening, agreed to the half pay. You know, has has a long, highly decorated career, but ultimately ends without a premiership. Yeah, you think of him like going to Manly or something in '84, and like where his career. Does anybody suit Manly more than E.T.? Yeah. <laughs> Flying down the the wing there with that mullet going, <laughs> the feathered mullet. Um, so the Sharks actually survived, you know, when Newtown didn't, partly because the other clubs thought they were geographically important, <laughs> occupying a very important era between St. George and Illawarra, <laughs> which, which shows you a lot about how rugby league people were thinking in 1983. But, like, we're going to go back a little bit. Like, roads weren't as good then. So, you know, it was a 40-minute trip, which is now 15. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> it, it matters a little bit. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so they, they survived. Newtown weren't so lucky. So the, the rugby league met uh, in September 1983 and decided to expel both Newtown and Wests from the competition for the following season. Um, and the, the funniest thing for me, just as a little aside, is how how often this story is recounted with reference to the fact that it was the night before Australia won the America's Cup. 
Like all of our childhoods, all you ever heard about was, you know, Australia winning the America's Cup. Like how were we as a nation so invested in a yacht race? That's amazing looking back. But you can't even really laugh at it because it's almost like laughing at the Anzacs. <laughs> older people will like, you know, string you up for it. But I'll just say this, like Dennis Connor was a national celebrity. <laughs> A captain of a yacht. I couldn't even imagine a scenario where I'd know the name of a yacht captain. <laughs> it was a wing keel. <laughs> so I, I should I should add that uh, it was viewed in Newtown's case that it would be a temporary uh, exile from the comp. They were planning to relocate to Campbelltown. The league told them to sit out 94, come back all guns blazing in Campbelltown in 1985, uh, as will... As we'll hear, or as anyone listening to this knows, that didn't happen. But uh, let, let's just talk about a bit about the reason for Newtown's decline. So it had actually been a very long time coming with when Glebe were kicked out in the 20s, there was talk of Newtown being next. You know, they, they'd lost their status as a district club in the 50s, you know, so it... It it had been a long time coming. That, <laughs> like just the ability of league clubs to like rugby league clubs to survive with the the axe hanging over it for yeah. decades. It's amazing. <laughs> I love this. In um, Terry Williams uh, wrote the the history of of Newtown Rugby League Club, and uh, when he's talking about the, them being kicked out, uh, just this quote stood out to me. Each time the Blues had fought their way out of trouble, this time they weren't given the chance. <laughs> and I've got to say, he was very fair minded about the decision to you know remove them from the league so he's not guilty of this but there is that that sentiment coming in a lot with people talking about newtown you know like you, you know 10 times we we're almost getting kicked out of the league and and we survived this time they didn't even give us the chance <laughs> you know it didn't give them the chance that we had three clubs within four kilometers yeah east south and newtown <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, but you had a, another club as far away as Balmain, so you know, <laughs> Canterbury. <laughs> um, and and the, what you always hear that it was a changing demographic, and that is something, a process that started, you know, in the 50s and probably before. So firstly, you had kind of a a, a slight sense of, of racism because that, that changing demographic is about migrants coming in. <laughs> then later, it became more of a gentrification kind of thing. But it was clear that Newtown didn't really have a place in the modern league. Well, in Phillips Street, I reckon they were using uh, international roast caterers blend in a big urn. I don't think they were worried about <laughs> nice Greek coffees in Newtown. And they they hadn't been able to get crowds for a long time. So in preparation for their move full-time to Campbelltown, they actually played three premiership games there in 1983. Uh, in the first of those, they got 10,682 which was the club's biggest home crowd for 13 years. <laughs> oh, man. So Ken Arthurson pretty accurately and succinctly sums up the Newtown case. The fact with Newtown was that they simply went broke. They had no money, couldn't pay their players, and the bulk of their supporters had moved away from the district in line with the changing nature of inner-city suburbs in Sydney. They were and are a club which had produced magnificent players and built unbreakable traditions. To show them the door hurt every one of us at the general committee meeting that Monday night. So, I believe that's genuine. Too. Yeah, absolutely. It, it wasn't a decision taken rashly or without factoring in that emotion. Uh, but I, I want to talk about Fred Daly a bit at this point. So Fred Daly was a, a long-serving Labor politician, uh, actually held the seat of Grandler in Marrickville, the, the seat of our current opposition leader, Anthony Albanese. Staunch Newtown fan all his life. 
Uh, when the, when he was talking about them getting kicked out, he said, poor old bloody Newtown. Nobody cared a week after we were gone, did did they? And, and that basically kind of sums up the situation. But There's nobody left, really. No. Like, it's like almost like the, the, even the Bears had more yeah. backlash. But you can't argue with the cold hard facts of Arco because if you can't pay your players yeah. and you have no money, yeah. what are you supposed to do? Exactly. 5,000 people coming every week. Like, yeah. Come on. And, and what I wanted to say about Fred Daly was, this is the absolute epitome of a rugby league man, diehard Newtown supporter, despite his you know long decorated professional career, loved rugby league and was its biggest supporter. When Newtown folds, he you know becomes Canberra's patron and their biggest supporter. Yeah, I love it. And you're you're more hardline about this. You say that the people who left after Super League were never true fans. I think that's a bit harsh. I think you can be a true fan and be disillusioned. But you can't be a rugby league man and leave rugby league. True, but this 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 series has made me open my eyes a bit to that hardline stance. The emotional ties of clubs, I've come to recognise it more as as we go along. So I I had this save for a bit later in the show, but we've brought it up. We might as well talk about it now before we get into the the rest of the club's demise and and you know clubs surviving is that it's so hard to remove emotion from these arguments. Yeah. You know, as much as I think I'm a game first person, I can't pretend that if St. George were gone from the comp, it would be the same for me. I'd still be a rugby league fan, but, you know... It, but you, it, come, you come around to the merger, okay? But it, it was it was a merger in name only. Like, yeah. it, it, even in 1999, it didn't appear that I was following a different team. Same jersey, same home ground, same song. You know, it was we just got some better players. You know, that, that, that's, that's how I and I understand. Like from the Illawarra side, that's a completely different experience. Mm. Like, and for for West and Balmain fans, again, like a lot more to adjust to than I had to as a St George fan. Yeah, true. But you you sent out a tweet earlier this week asking for for your opinion on which club should fold, relocate, or merge. And it, it was a case of, as the kids say, "R.I.P. Our mentions." But when I saw when I saw that you tweeted that, as much as we don't shy away from these conversations on the show, like my heart sank. I was like, "Oh no, what have you done?" <laughs> well, there's a lot of strong opinions. Yeah, and I, it opened my eyes again to like how many people have got bitterness in their heart, you know, over mergers and stuff. And I, I think over the past two years, we've with with some of our discussions, we're kind of gaining the reputations of like unsentimental butchers, but it, it's something that I'm, I'm not flipping about at heart. And like, the more we talk about this, the more that emotion kind of yeah, um, agree, comes man. into play. I've been probably too flipping on it. That's more my uh, persona. <laughs> I mean, uh, flippancy. But like, yeah, uh, it, yeah it, I mean, it would hurt if if your club went. I'm not gonna mm. not gonna deny it. But I just think for the good of the game, we need to. Someone's got to be hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll move forward, but I just wanted to have that little discussion. So as I said, the the plan was for Newtown to move to Campbelltown, and one of the the key reasons for their financial failure in the eighties was actually the ultimate reason for their demise, and that was uh, their failing club in Stanmore, which they couldn't sell. So they were hoping that to raise two point five to three million dollars from the sale of this club. That would enable them to start afresh, debt free, and with a chance to, you know, build a strong new identity in Campbelltown. But this was happening at an unfortunate time with the real estate market. They weren't able to attract a buyer, 
Amazing. Uh, and at the same time that that merge was was being planned, Campbelltown Rugby League were actually in serious financial problems themselves and were reliant on Newtown coming in and easing that. And meanwhile, like the, the, the nation's about to go into a boom of, of, of economic growth. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know yeah. Just, like rugby league's still dying. <laughs> just, just poor timing. But... Um, so ultimately, the, the deal was scuppered, and in 1985, that temporary suspension became permanent. So that was basically it for Newtown. West, of course, who were also slated for extinction, managed to hang on. Uh, we're going to talk about how shortly, but first, let's just set up that financial position. So uh, after being a mini force in the late 70s into the early 80s, had fallen away on the field and were increasingly unable to keep their best players and... Uh, had lost a, a lot of revenue from that failure on the field. They lost Victor as a sponsor uh, and were not, unable to attract a you know suitable replacement. I'm just picturing that meeting with the guy from the mower, mower company going, mate, you're not winning, mate. Like, <laughs> we're, we're taking away the uh, push mowers. <laughs> so they also uh, proposed a 50% pay cut to the players. Uh, which... <laughs> like it's some sort of viable. How would you feel about... A fifty percent pay cut, yeah. <laughs> not not good actually. And, and I mean, this is the the inverse ET. Terry Lamb uh, decides to not put up with you know a failing club and yeah, taking yeah. half pay. Goes to Canterbury, parachutes into a premiership winning the team the next year. Mm. You know, ends up you know one of the most celebrated and decorated players in the game. If he'd stayed, maybe they could have done something. Yeah, true. But but it wasn't all stiffing the players. West West management were you know shrewd financial planners, uh, and and some of their schemes for for getting the club back in the black. You know I I think they they weren't without merit. I'll I'll just read read this. Uh, so this was Neil Cadigan in the Rugby League Week in 1983. The Magpies have reverted to the old style fundraising activities like a fate and a giant guessing competition, <laughs> showing just how desperate their showing just how desperate their plight is. The fate raised $6,000 and about 70,000 tickets have been printed for the try of the year competition. Uh, Chairman Ray Berners-Goni said, Our supporters are letting us down. I make a plea to them to get in and sell the guessing competition tickets. If we get 2,000 supporters in the whole of New South Wales to sell a book each, things would be that much easier. It's incredibly sweet, but I mean, God almighty. It, it is incredibly sweet, but if that's your solution, you are fundamentally at odds. <laughs> With what the league is trying to achieve. What's the opposite of streamlining? But like, um, first of all, I love a fate. Always have. <laughs> but no good. What was the guessing competition? How long are they going to last? Like, yeah. <laughs> I reckon two weeks. Uh, and also sweet and, and ultimately sad is the confidence that the West board had that they wouldn't be kicked out of the comp. So this was President John Brooks. I'm confident that we won't get the chop. When it comes to the crunch, I don't think the general committee are going to be able to say, well, that's it, Wes. It's a tough job to sack anyone, and it's particularly tough when it's a football club that's been in business for 76 years. Uh, the, the, the other way they felt blindsided was the fact that we spoke about it at the start that nine clubs were insolvent. Wes thought, thought that, well, well, no one who's you know in dire financial troubles themselves is going to like <laughs> risk having that blowtorch put on them by kicking us out. Um, as it turns out, they they were very wrong, um, and and again, Rayburn Asconi with just a, a statement that just just made me quite sad. Give us a chance. We may not win the competition in 1984, but we will be competitive. We'll stir up a bit of trouble. 
but uh, that plea was rejected by 29 votes to 12. But of course, they, they didn't get kicked out of the comp. They decided to fight it through the courts. Uh, Age-old rugby league tradition. So because of that court action, they were unable to be kicked out in 1984. In 1985, the court situation was ongoing. And because the league didn't think that it was going to be resolved in time for the 1986 season, they formally you know, allowed them to join the competition for the next year. But then late in 1985, the high court uh, actually came down and said that the league had the right to kick them out of the comp. But by that stage, the, the wheels were in motion for them to join the comp in 86 and, ironically enough, take over Campbelltown in 1987. And that's how they safeguarded their future. Great state of execution. But let me ask you this. How are they paying for a high court action? Yeah, this is what I I don't understand. Like You've got raffle tickets and guessing comps one one week and then yeah. next, next week you've got QCs. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. It's it's very strange, and I don't have an answer for you. Maybe maybe uh, uh, one of our listeners can fill us in on that. But what I thought would have been brilliant is if Wes and Newtown actually merged and became like the the Western Suburbs Jets. Yeah, it would have been cool. You know, would would have placated Newtown, who who were originally the innovators behind going to Campbelltown. The blue uniform better than the the black and white, I think. Uh, Jets better than Magpies, I think. Uh, and also just tying in with the the second airport, which never came. But <laughs> in the mid eighties, they weren't to know that. <laughs> it, was, it was only six months away in the mid eighties. <laughs> so with that sorted, with West, you know, securing their future by moving to Campbelltown, the, the league were placated that they addressed that issue and, and were taking the next necessary steps, and that was the expansion of the competition. So as we said, this was something that was talked about in the late 70s and, and kept on being discussed. Go back to our history of the birth of the Brisbane Broncos to hear about the entry of those three new clubs in 1988 in depth. Uh, but a push for Auckland came as early as 1985. So it was something that was in progress uh, all the way through the decade. That's amazing it was that early. Mm. And in the 1991 annual report, John Quayle actually said that they'd had seven applications to become new clubs in the New South Wales Rugby League. So two from New Zealand, two from Queensland, two from Victoria, and one from Western Australia. Where was the second New Zealand one from? Christchurch. I'm assuming they were, when you see that, two Victorian ones as well, I, th I think they were just rival, oh, rival right. groups, rival, rival tickets, bids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Jeans West bid. Yeah. In 1992, they decided to add two more teams to the competition for 1995. And I'll read this, Ken Atherson, in the 1993 annual report. In my report last year, I talked of the two teams being added to the 1995 Premiership. Not long after the report had gone to press, events, of course, had passed me by on that one. In fact, we added not two, but four new clubs for season 1995. Reckless. It was very cavalier decision-making mm. that, as we'll see, probably wasn't met with the necessary... Uh, well, let me ask you this. The... The rock solid nature of Broncos and Knights eighty eight, they're throwing Gold Coast, right? But with Broncos and Knights, do you reckon they got a bit overconfident? Definitely. It's like, oh yeah, well the Broncos and Knights are yeah. sweet. It's like, well, yeah, well they're rugby league heartlands. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, there, there was definitely a case that manifests itself not just in this, but in you know other aspects of their plan, their future planning. It was decision making propelled by arrogance. Right. And and I think that was one of the key missteps. In his 1991 annual report, Ken Arthurson wrote that 
their guarantee is that any expansion in the years ahead will be put in place only after thorough consideration and planning. Yet two years later, before the ink is even dry on the announcement of yeah. two new teams, yeah. they add two two more. <laughs> uh, and in fact, at that time, they had been actively looking at reducing the number of teams with the Bradley Report commissioned in 1991, which stressed... Uh, I'll, I'll just read this direct quote. The problem facing the league is that the competition already has too many clubs to allow two complete rounds to be played. And in addition... Too many of the Sydney-based clubs are inner-city clubs with a declining junior base and an ethnic demographic profile. In the long term, it's likely that Sydney is not going to be able to support 11 clubs as it does at present. <laughs> does the Bradley report suggest that ethnic people can't like rugby league? <laughs> is that what he's suggesting? <laughs> it would appear so. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's almost biblical, like... Three times they'd agreed to have less clubs, you know. In the late 70s, they talked about reducing the number of clubs. In the mid-80s, it was strongly recommended by their own committee that they have less clubs. They commissioned a report in 1991 stating the need for less clubs. Three times they're told this, three times they deny it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, look what happens. But every time they try and kick someone out, they're in the high court. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> so so that whole section of this episode was basically to set up what we would see during Super League. So we're going to see the culmination of all of that as we go on in our series. Now let's just go on to talk about Rugby League into the 90s and some of those other changes that were mooted and being brought in and being resisted that paved the way for Super League a few years later. Let me firstly say... The rose-colored glasses is scrum-like on the suburban ground myth, right? The, the Phil Gould Sunday afternoon footy uh, lie. Yeah. <laughs> because all through the 80s, we've got crowds of five to 7,000. It's funny you mentioned Phil Gould because I saw a tweet in one of those occasions where he's on Twitter and engaging with the fans. Someone talked about like, oh, how good the footy was in the 80s and blah, blah, blah. And Phil Gould actually said... They were great days. We were getting 3,000 people to, to grounds. You know? <laughs> so even he knows it's uh, rubbish. But yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up. It's definitely rose-colored glasses yeah. and we need to accept it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I grew up in Newtown and it was something I wrestled with like growing up, like not having that club. Like It was crazy to me that if I was born a decade earlier, I would have had my own club in my own suburb, yeah, yeah. you know, but... Times change. And so one of the big changes was the draft. And so the draft and the salary cap were coming in at about the same time, both with the aim of saving clubs from themselves. Uh, so the draft was obviously, you know, fought in the courts as well and defeated, uh, which which is a, an, another story in itself. It's not something we're going to speak about it at length. Spearheaded by my former employer and friend and mentor, Chris Murphy. And of course, friend of the show, Kevin Ryan. A couple um, of hard men there. Yeah. Um, go back and listen to our interview with Kevin. Um, very intimidating man. <laughs> <laughs> nice bloke. But if, if you're in your like 80s and you like are scaring us. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are wimps, but I yeah, mean, true. <laughs> but, but he has come back from the dead as well. So yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty tough bloke. So it it was ultimately ruled a restraint of trade and and wasn't allowed to continue, and it's just it's very funny to me the way that certain sports will accept certain restraints of of trade and not others, and 
the the legalities of this will will go uncontested in most cases. Like I'm sure if if the NBA like launched some class action about the draft, like they'd probably win. Yeah, but they all see the benefit of it. Yeah, it's the clubs would have a chance to get off the canvas mm. if there was a draft, but it's just not in our makeup here. Yeah, rugby league. I don't know why. It's just never going to happen. Well, that, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> like, do you have any idea of like why? Why couldn't it have worked? Because rugby league's about standing on your own two feet, um, chest out. No one's telling me what to do. Tough guys, you know. The idea of like someone telling you where you're going to work and live. Yeah, it's like just. Makes people bristle in rugby league, and then I think the other big one is the junior development thing. And like, I don't really know what the plan was. How do you extricate the clubs from responsibility for their own juniors, which you need to do to have a draft? Yet again, there's no more junior junior focused sport in, yeah. the, in the world than rugby league. It's just junior, junior, junior. Mm. People just love it. And it's like we're developing these guys. <laughs> And yet they go and go elsewhere anyway. Yeah. So it's basically the same result. Yeah. They just want first pick of them. Yeah. Matt Dufty's twin sister is my son's daycare teacher. So I've been putting the hard word on her to make sure he re-signs. <laughs> I know this because you text message me excitedly <laughs> about that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can uh, I can convince him to stay. I texted Laurie and he said some people are just tragic. <laughs> The draft coincided, well, it probably wasn't a coincidence, with the rise of the Players Association. <laughs> Can we just talk about the draft? It makes me laugh so hard that Terry Hill is the yeah. is the catalyst for the draft being overturned. <laughs> like, like pre-lobster Terry Hill. <laughs> so at, at the same time the draft was, the draft furor was ongoing, it represented a, a high point for the Rugby League Players Association up to that moment in time where they were having real influence and real teeth probably for the first time. Uh, they were tr- pushing for some actual professional conditions for players in terms of, you know, sick and, you know, like holiday pay, all the rest of it, payment for training and, and really getting the players up to a professional standing. Uh, and the the league's response to that was was typical of the way they kind of handled grievances in that era, which uh, Ken Arthurson came out and said, the Players Association are about to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. <laughs> and that was the tenor of the time. So you're already building this resentment between the league and the players, like instituting this chasm, this idea that you're not open to any criticism or suggestions for improvement. Anything you suggest is just going to get shot down anyway. And that will manifest itself over and over again. Is it not the old uh, rugby league adage of like the, the, back in my day we, we 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 had to work and train? Like, what are you complaining about? Like Frank Burge in the fifties saying how uh, how easy they had it compared to the thirties. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Is it is it a bit of that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Funnily enough, Arthur Bateson, who you know was was a spearhead of the the early players' association in the late seventies, it, it's funny that his attitude was like, you know, oh, I'd spend the off season like doing labouring. It got me in really good shape. You know, I think players today, if they did some of that, <laughs> <laughs> imagine playing a full season and then doing bricky's labouring. <laughs> but so that that iteration of the the players' association was was ultimately undone. Uh, by infighting with rival factions forming because it's rugby league. Uh, and then the actual uh, push for Super League probably had a big part in its demise as well, where you know players thought that they were being looked after now. 
wasn't as necessary. But funnily, funnily enough, one of the big dramas with the Players Association in 1994 was tied very closely to News Limited and footy cards. So revenue for footy cards was administered or went to a News Limited owned company called Sport Australia and the Players Association had struck a deal with them to have the money that players were getting, which was a pittance really. It was $35,000 for the year in 1994. For all of them. For all of them. Wow. To go into a, a fund that would be managed by the Players Association. That reached boiling point with players demanding their Tarzo money basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, leading to a, a, a kind of big split and a big furor about the Players Association. So it, it's a very interesting story over, over the last you know couple of decades with the ebbs and flows of that organization's strength. We're always mocking the Players Association for being toothless, right? But they did make some huge inroads. Yeah. From um, where they were. Yeah, absolutely. To like a couple of beers and a pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit of money to... So the other, the other big uh, point of tension... On that side of things was the salary cap, which we're not going to talk about today because it's actually a a big part of our next episode. But while the draft was ongoing, the league was also trying to get the salary cap right, and you know, coming against, coming up against the resistance of, you know, weak clubs who wanted it tougher, strong clubs who wanted it weaker, and you know, the endless cycle of, of argument about the salary cap. But entering the 90s league was in a really strong place. And, you know, we talked about that in in that high watermark year of 1994 with crowds being up and the game being really exciting. And this is an area where Arthurson and Quayle, like, you you can't, like, overstate how much credit they deserve in, in this instance. Like, from... Crowds in 1982 being, you know, 1,680,000 to less than 10 years later almost two, two point four million. Yeah. They turned things around remarkably while at the same time, unlike the seventies crowds growth, which were based on trying to restrict T V coverage, while striking new T V deals, making league more accessible on T V than ever before, and creating an interest in the game that in that same year in nineteen ninety one, the number of accredited league journal- journalists had tripled from the start of the decade. Yeah, it's really cool. I think Friday night football was the was the big yeah mover, just snowballed from mm. there. Yeah, that was absolutely a massive one, wasn't it? Still had to wait for old uh, Don Burke, but <laughs> so at the same time that the crowds were up, league was also in a much better position financially, and that was uh, the brief of John Quayle in particular to turn the league's finances around. So by 1993, they had almost 14 million dollars in reserves, and you can see. In those annual reports, you can see the pride that John Quayle took in the league's cash reserves. I don't understand that word. Doesn't he mean war chest? <laughs> um, that, that's one of the a, a couple of very sad ironies here. Firstly, the fact that John Quayle didn't realise that he was building a war chest, <laughs> and secondly, that what he spent a decade building was gone before lunchtime on April Fool's Day, nineteen ninety-five. <laughs> And the third irony that what he spent a decade building, Kerry Packer essentially whipped out of his back pocket. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get to it, obviously, but just the amount of money just down the drain. Yeah. Yeah, um, the, yeah we are going to get to it. But the estimate of how much was spent on the Super League war, anything from, you know, between $700 million and a billion, it's like, 
For what? <laughs> <laughs> it was up there with the Vietnam War. Yeah. But on that financial situation, it, it was in many ways built on a house of cards propped up by two key pillars, gambling and cigarettes. So we talked about how, how keen Ken Arthurson was to praise Winfield and, you know, that, that went everything from, you know, regular testimonies on grand final day, effusive praise and thanks in the annual reports through to raising petitions when cigarette money was going to be legislated out of rugby league, the formation of committees to stop that from happening. It's really hard to judge a guy now on that because it was just accepted back then and he had an obligation to protect the game's money, right? Yeah. But looking back on it, it's just horrible. Yeah, exactly. And and the other pillar was the pillar that survives to this day with gambling. And well, it's going to be like that in the future when they look back on that. Yeah. And go, what the hell was Joel Kane talking about? So that's one side of it, the increasing sponsorship from gambling that we're seeing today. But going back to before that was commonplace and it was just all about poker machine re- revenue at, at leagues clubs, which, I mean, let's be honest, r- rugby league is dead without those poker machines. And in our preview episode where we were talking about what could be the impetus for a Super League today, I mean, that's it right there. If the government ever takes action on poker machines, League will have no choice but to become a Super League or die. Yeah. It's like if it wasn't for these disgusting machines, it would be like Sydney rugby <laughs> Yeah. now. But I, I don't know if you have any insight on this, but I, I feel like about maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little less or more, there was some kind of public support for more government intervention, if not an outright ban on poker machines. And I feel like we're not hearing that much these days. They, uh, The poker machine lobby is like cigarette lobby powerful. Yeah. And they had a good a good comeback with their, you know, literally propaganda ad campaigns. Yeah. So, uh, but there was, there was a shift in public so shifting the public consciousness is where everyone goes this is no good we all know it's no good and just like cigarettes eventually mm. they'll go but yeah. it might take another 20 years yeah 50 years maybe <laughs> <laughs> so the the other key driver and probably the most important of, of all in this era was the marketing of rugby league and you know grandmother of the game we're going to talk about at length but before we get to tina i want to talk about the marketing in the eighties, because I think they were they were doing really well even before Tina Turner. Like some of those ads they had, which were before my time, but which I've subsequently gone and viewed mm. at the Rugby League Museum. You had the boys are back in town in the early eighties. Awesome. Um, song called War Horse, which I, I I can't get on YouTube, but I'd love to to watch that one again. Even going back, you, we talked about Friday Night Footy football coming in do you remember that the friday on the on my mind ad yeah yeah um i think it was when russell fairfax was coaching ace from memory he played a a big role in the ad but i remember even then like just thinking that's really cool this you know this this ad so yeah yeah but that's one of the great songs yeah but of course like it was tina turner that changed everything for rugby league so so just as as we start the the tina turner section of this episode i just wanted to do a little exercise uh, it'll only take four seconds. I can see the fear in your your eyes because I'm like sandbagging you on this. But if, if you could just close your eyes and I invite the, the listeners at home to do the same and, and just, just listen to this and focus on nothing else. 
Okay, can can I just get you now that you've heard that? What was your chills? Chills, exactly. Like I, I had the exact same experience. And um, in preparation for this show, I I went to Spotify and listened to simply the best Sands any rugby league footage, which I've never I've never heard that song. No, right? Like disassociated from. I've rugby never league. heard it on the radio. No. Like I've never heard that. I song. listen to one hundred one point seven, <laughs> and I never heard it on the radio. And listening to it, I couldn't help but insert like the the rugby league sounds, the commentary, the like the crowd sounds, that everything else that you heard in the ad. Like it, it just automatically went into my listening experience to that song. The one, uh, the one vision I've got from it is her on stage at the grand final with the red, the red and gold yeah. there. And like cheering around, that's the vision I get from it. Mm. Might have been the year after. So that that was actually ninety three was when she was at the grand final yeah. in person. So, but when they used to replay the ad with that, yeah, footage that's what sticks in my mind. But so I'm assuming everyone listening had that same like Pavlovian response to yeah. hearing those bass notes. Uh, I, I actually, I'd like to hear from any younger listeners who maybe missed the the ad when it was you know a current thing whether it has that same effect or if it's something you had to be there for. Well, it couldn't have the same effect. No. But so un- undeniably one of the the greatest like marketing efforts in Australian sport. And we always laugh at it because it's like one of the three things talked about in yeah. early history, but it's the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's up there with Come On Aussie, Come On. Like I, I can't think of many more successful advertising campaigns that have seeped so deep into the consciousness of the supporters of that sport. Yeah. Knowing this, setting up the relationship between Tina Turner and the league, would it surprise you, Andrew, to know that this wasn't a, a, a long thought out, targeted uh, campaign, a, a genius at the league, thinking that Tina Turner and rugby league were a marriage made in heaven? It would surprise me if it wasn't the case of running into her at, at an airport. Uh, so you, you're not far off. Basically, John Quayle's personal assistant, Mickey Braithwaite, uh, great name, by the way, she had she was friends with Tina Turner's manager and basically just put it to her and then they worked it out. <laughs> Do you reckon Arthurson knew who she was? Oh, I I I, I think so. I, I think she Probably from like, you know, Mountain High. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, Tina, yeah. I I I can see some some uh post post uh Monday night meetings that you know the the tape player coming out and, you know, a bit bit of Tina, I can <laughs> Tina coming on. Um But so so Tina Turner agreed uh, to to be you know the the voice of rugby league in 1989, but with a catch. So she was only available basically for one day. Um, she was in London, so they thought, well, let's we'll do her portion of the ad there, and then we can regroup and film the rest of it in Sydney. Uh, they recruited a couple of uh, league players who were playing in London at the time, Cliff Lyons and Gavin Miller, <laughs> to, to 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 film with Tina. <laughs> Can you imagine her face when those two cartoon characters, the rugby league players, walk in? And the funny thing is, like, Gavin Miller, in that 89 ad, the what you get is what you see ad, like, he's almost cut out completely. <laughs> so I, I think his head was, like, you know, like, too ugly for rugby league in the end. He looked like like a uh, Lone Sharks collector, like, bashed up face, right? Tough guy. And Cliff is just hilarious with that curly hair and the mustache like it's hilarious <laughs> you're so right I'd, I'd love to know her thought process when she turned up and saw cliff lines and gavin miller there 
But so so that eighty nine ad, the the what you get is what you see. I, I still maintain that is the best ad. Oh, my favorite song. of all time. It's, it's my favorite ad of all time. Yeah, yeah, same. Like I I like this is what a like rugby league tragic I am. I like have to watch that clip every few months. But like what I was um, we'll talk about this off air. But I was saying it's it's the quality of the filming is really amazing. It's high quality. It's like it's not like the other ads of the era, like the little doers, like telling the yeah, price. Yeah, yeah. Lubemobile and that. Every every step of the way, it is so professionally done. Just the way it's shot, the way it builds. So you never actually see any rugby league, as in on-field action, until like bang, drum beat, chorus, someone getting smashed over the sideline. That's the first rugby league action you see. Yeah. That ad, as much as it works on that visceral level for us uh, as rugby league fans, like it's basically made entirely for mothers to yeah, yeah. Um, pique their own interest in the game and, you know, get the whole family on board. Like the the homoeroticism <laughs> of it, which is another fundamental aspect of rugby league. You can't get away from it. Uh, like that ad is like absolute perfection, you know. I, I used to like, in 1989, I was like, you know, diving onto my bed, like, you know, acting out the ad yeah, you know, yeah. with, with that song in, in my, so my cool. head. Um, great song too yeah and then simply the best came about because uh it was it was being released uh around the time of the 1990 season and because of that relationship tina turner's management offered the league the rights to it what you get is what you see that was the better ad but simply the best like was obviously the the better fit in terms of song message yeah um, and that's what became the phenomenon but funnily enough, like, you, you know, we talk about the dumb luck of just, uh, you know, a relationship between John Quayle's assistant and Tina Turner's manager ch- basically changing rugby league forever. It, it was kind of the same with, with the actual marketing team behind it. So, And I, I should shout out for another show, James Smith from Inside Sport, who wrote a great article about um, the Tina Turner campaign last year. And in that, he sourced an interview that, uh, the 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 advertising executive Jim Walpole, uh, who was one half of Hertz Walpole, who produced that ad, uh, he talked about the, you know getting that ad off the ground, and he said there was nothing scientific about it all. We didn't research it. So surprising. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of underselling like how good a job they did, but at the same time, it, it's it's so fitting with rugby league. But it wasn't this like. <laughs> This is this is really going to take off. This is going to change the game. It was just like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll get Tina. We'll, we'll make an ad. See what happens. It's funny you mentioned the mothers, right? Because it was a very the clean cut boys, Wayne Pierce, shaved chests, yeah. and like um, all that sort of business. It was yeah. very Ricky Walford pumping iron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the, that's the most uh, memorable scene of the whole thing. Well, for me, the most memorable memorable scene is the player like squirting water on his face in slow motion. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh... That's more for the fathers, I think. Mean, <laughs> but like the, um, it was a new era, mm. a fresh, new, clean era. Yeah, and that ad says like that's the exact message of that ad, isn't it? Well, someone put a thing on Twitter the other day. It was a, it was a West ad from the eighties, and it was like two like bouncer-looking blokes, Dallas Donnelly and someone else, mustaches, you know, unruly hair, beer guts, with this like you know promo model in between, and with a shirt that says Wes, where the action is. <laughs> And like that, we went from that to like eight years later. We were, <laughs> but uh, but we talk about the dumb luck of that campaign, and 
there's there's an element where you can clearly see it in the way they were talking that I think it went to their heads and they didn't see that element of luck and the fact that it wasn't their own brilliance, their own uh, genius that made that happen. It was a lucky coincidence uh, coupled with, yes, getting the right people on board and, and making it happen. But some of the comments you'd see from Arthurson and Quayle really kind of speak of that uh, that arrogance that came out of that campaign. So this was uh, in, in the 1991 annual report. To use once more the phrase that has become synonymous with our great game, the first 10 years of the Winfield Cup have been simply the best. <laughs> and then in 1993, simply the best, better than all the rest. The words of the song that has become rugby league's anthem are much more than just the lyrics of another pop tune. They spell out an established philosophy for our game and a guideline for future directions. Which, I mean, great as that ad was, should you really be basing your guidelines for the future of the game <laughs> around a pop song? Well, he wasn't locomotion. But, like, God almighty, that's just riding, in, riding it to the death. Yeah. Flogging yeah. the dead horse. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that in 1995, when John Rebo was interviewed by Inside Sport uh, for a you know fairly expensive profile uh, on him and, you know, the changes he thought as I remember. Necessary. I remember it. He, he said, had this to say. I think there's become this arrogance because of the great profile that Tina Turner's presented us. We've had this false economy. So true. Mm. <laughs> Rebo, he had all the tools, ex-player, good player, good bloke, business mind, and somehow he still fell short. Yeah. He had all the credentials. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it's funny that, like, you know, we said at the outset that I had a very pro ARL view in the era, uh, which, which has, you know, changed over time. But in 1995, like, he was the absolute devil. It's like John Rebo. It's about, that's what I hated. I hated the knee-jerk idiocy yeah. and the sandbagging on the footy show. When I saw him, like, ganging up on him, I thought, he's soft buggers, you know? Like, let him let, give him a fair chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, there's a lot more Rebo content as our series progresses. But let, let's stay on the, the Arthurson and Quayle years. And one of the... We mentioned it in our um, opening monologue, but one of the themes that was re returned to again and again was the fact that they were victims of their own success. And in fact, it was their decision-making, the progress they made in the game that made rugby league such an attractive proposition. So, and, and Ken Arthurson says that exact thing in his book. He says, what we did back then from 1983 onwards has sown the seeds for Super League. The greatest expansionary period the game has ever seen was the catalyst for News Limited interest in the rugby league product in 1994. League had gone from being a Sydney game to a national game. Corporate eyes lit up at the prospects it held. Ultimately, we were victims of our own success. Rather self-serving. Self-serving, but there was truth in it. And in the wake of a lot of criticism coming towards Quayle and Arthurson in 95 at the height of the Super League War, you had this from Ian Heads in the Sun-Herald. The following are worth consideration as the Super League snipers continue their barrage at Quail. In 1983, New South Wales Rugby League revenue was $3, three million. In 1994, it was $25 million. In 1983, total premiership crowds were 1,400,000. In 1994, they were 2,500,000. Goes on and on with, with a list of achievements yeah. that that administration brought in. Can't deny it. You can't deny the success, but then there's the other side of the ball, which is... Were they resting on their laurels? 
and you can definitely see some stasis and a failure to continue to grow the game as as they celebrated all their achievements and you know the increased crowds the the Tina Turner the, the profile that rugby league had did they need to do more and a senior official who didn't go on record in Mike Coleman's Super League book but he had this to say about Arthurson and Quayle they were right on the money back in those days when Humphreys left the game's image was in tatters and Arco and Quayle did everything right they had to it was only later when things were humming along that they seemed to get smug and self-satisfied. They were throwing these huge functions. Everyone was telling them how great they were. They got soft. They lost their edge. And, and these sentiments were kind of echoed by Norm Tasker, who both Norm Tasker and Ian Heads in 1995 represented the old the old firm in so many ways. Like Both of them had a, I wouldn't say very, but a, a mildly pro-ARL um, stance, but both of them equally recognised the failings of the ARL uh, over time and the need for change. Norm Tasker in the Rugby League Week in 1995 wrote this, There is little buzz and little motivation in some of the cakewalks currently served up in an expanded competition that would take several years to settle. The league has failed itself by not recognising this earlier. As they expanded and lifted the game to new levels, they should have undertaken a compensatory reduction in the number of Sydney clubs so that required strength and resources could be maintained. So if you've got someone like Norm Tasker coming out and yeah. saying that. But like, look, look at the quality of journalism back then, Tasker, Heads. All, we, all we've got left now is Masters, really. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and even on the News Limited side, you had, you know, Ray Chester and yeah. Peter Falingos, you know. Like, there's, there's real, it's gone tabloid. Yeah. Had, like, it's one of my great regrets that um, Ian Heads was too much of a gentleman to be an administrator. Mm-hmm. And Masters, like, he, he, he was uh, tough enough to do it. Yeah. Two great minds that we never had running the game. Mm. One of one of Ken Arthurson's promises in his nineteen ninety one annual report was that we as administrators will be constantly vigilant, never complacent. And it's so funny to see that word complacent in nineteen ninety one, because that is the word which would basically define the league in the nineties. Yeah. And this complacency would continue to grow once Super League hit. So even when the writing was in, you know, 120 point on, on the walls. <laughs> they were still failing to read it. And the comments about we already have a Super League, which you'd hear all the time, it kind of speaks of their failure to address any grievances with, with any kind of uh, reflection. It was always shutting it down. Yeah. You know, this this arrogance, this unwillingness. It goes back to one of our early history corners when we talked about... Um, the Alan Jones era at Balmain. Part of that was the incident between Gary Jack and Ian Roberts. And when Gary Jack was was outraged that like a, a violent assault was to go unpunished, John Quayle's response was to you know say, oh, you know, Gary Jack would do that as well, you know, and basically like yeah. minimize it and yeah, just yeah. instantly dismiss it. Well, they made the wrong choice here. I can assure you. <laughs> And this this quote, which was also from Mike Coleman's Super League book, I, I don't believe this was actually said, but Graham Hughes said that in 19... I think it was 93, he was having an argument with Quayle and he said, from the outside looking in, I've never seen an organisation so ripe for takeover. Uh, and Quayle like, just basically dismissed it out of hand. Now, as I said, I don't believe that actually happened. I think that's Graham Hughes puffing himself up a bit <laughs> right. but I, I do believe that a conversation happened where john quayle like just 
dismiss the idea that you know anything could come along and you know say that in front of my chairman yeah exactly like it was it was it was a constant with people who were dealing with quail that you know their complaints weren't being listened to i've got to say like given their record they, they should have had a bit of confidence about them but mm. obviously they were they weren't looking at the, yeah to the future and that is going to be one of the key themes of our next episode. So we're going to close it here. I'm going to, to set that up by giving the closing words of this chapter to Norm Tasker, uh, writing in 1995. Maybe, just maybe, the ARL and before them the New South Wales Rugby League can look back and wonder just what they did to leave all of these people so disenchanted. Were they too unwilling to listen to the likes of John Rebo when he put forward progressive ideas? Did they find them threatening? Did the players consider themselves undervalued as money went out on stretch limousines and overseas megastars? Was there a feeling that the league had just a little too much of the ivory tower about it? That's a very poignant comment from Tasker. So that is basically what we're going to explore at in a bit more detail next week as we're looking at the tension that directly led to Super League. So a lot of that's going to be Brisbane Broncos focused, but as we'll see, there's several other factors that paved the way. So on that note, we're going to get out of here as we have been doing and will continue to do. I'm going to give my plug for the book of the week. And this book should have actually been discussed in our very first episode. This is an absolutely foundational text in rugby league. And that is Ian Head's 1992 history of New South Wales rugby league, True Blue. Goes into the administration of the game as well as the on-field stuff in such great detail that... uh, it's 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 an absolute must-have. It should be on every real rugby league fan's shelves at home. Awesome. Uh, so with that, we're getting out of here. We would both so love to get your thoughts on what we've discussed today. Uh, anything you would like to tell us, send an email to the Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and please, as always, uh, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would really help us out. Uh, and on that, we'll get out of here. Toodaloo.